Amen. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis 42 after you're seated. Joseph has been made the prime minister of Egypt when we left off. He was in charge of the famine survival campaign, which required seven years of careful, very disciplined, knowledgeable planning, storage, collection, storage of grain. Uh, No easy task. Uh, He was specially suited, gifted by God, not only by the vision he had, but just the capacity to pull off this, this campaign that he had to do. And then when we left off at the end of chapter 41, the seven years of plenty had just finished and then the first year of famine was underway. And it didn't take long, as you can imagine, if you were not prepared for this famine, it would not take long. I mean, what, weeks before um, people were starving? And this is what we see happening, not just in Egypt where they had food, but the regions laying uh, outside of Egypt as well. About 250 miles away was Hebron. That's where Jacob and sons lived. That's a two and a half week journey to get to Egypt. And so we pick up with Jacob and his sons contemplating their situation. You'll remember that Joseph was gone for 20, almost 21 years by the time this episode we read concerning uh, happens. He was 17 when he was sold for dead by his own brothers. When he was thrown into a pit and his brothers circled on the top of that pit, Uh, deciding whether to kill him or sell him. That's what he remembers when he was 17. Now he's 38 years old, and they are going to have to appeal to him as they stand before him, not able to recognize him, but he recognized his brothers. It says in Numbers 32, be sure that your sin will find you out. Let's hear now as I read God's holy word, Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who, had, who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to seek the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let them bring your brother while you remain confined 
that your words may be tested, whether whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you to not sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack, and when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, For his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we once again come to your word and can sense the words of James to be true. Your word is like a mirror. We look into it and we see ourselves. Help us to not walk away and forget what we see. Instead, guide us by your Holy Spirit so that we might understand and apply your word today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
I'll begin by asking you this question. Is there some particular sin that has been gnawing at your conscience? Some past situation where you know that God is not pleased and he is calling you to come clean and to make it right. Now we go to the episode before us and we have a massive, massive weight starting to lift from the backs of these brothers. It's only just starting and there's a lot of weight to remove. You can't get more hardened than this group of brothers. You have Reuben, the oldest, who committed adultery with his father's wife. Judah, another brother, impregnated his daughter-in-law, who he thought was a prostitute. Simeon and Levi organized the massacre of a village that made Jacob a scourge to the area, a stench to the region. Mass murderers they were. Ten of the brothers together in conspiracy to keep quiet this awful sin of selling their own brother into slavery. Under the watch care of their father, they take the son and put him in this pit. Even when he cried out for mercy, the ten of them had to agree that they were going to sell him like they did. And then afterward, had to keep the lie going whenever they were together, not to bring it up. Let's not mention it. Let's not speak of it again. Let's bury our conscience. Let's kill our conscience. Well, you can imagine what this did to family unity over the years. These many sins committed worked to divide them and harden them. They lived their lives to kill their guilty conscience, so that drove them apart from each other, often and most often separated from each other. They didn't want to get into a situation where one would tell and it would all come out. They lived their lives trying to bury their guilty conscience and they had to be miserable for it. But through the grace of God, in the actions of the very brother that they sought to harm so terribly, they would start to gain freedom from their guilt. You see, facing the past often means confrontation, recognition of the sin that was committed. We've been trying to bury it for so long to see that it's there. It's still there. It didn't go away. Then a confession that comes next, and a confession that leads to godly sorrow, a true fear of God. It leads to repentance. Let's look at how it unfolds here. First with the confrontation that these brothers endure. When they have to be faced with a sin long ago committed, but always there, they unexpectedly were faced with the truth about their past. This isn't the reason they went to Egypt, of course. They had no idea this would come up, but they're forced to confront what they did to their brother in this whole episode. They're pressed with a situation that forces them to recall their evil deeds. It's quite a scene at the beginning. It tells you how rough this family is, the kind of shape they're in. It says in verse 1, when Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just stare at each other? Somebody go do something so maybe we won't die. That would be better. Now, what's so sad about this is they had been so disjointed that they didn't have any kind of a relationship that was close enough to have an obvious discussion, it seems. But the famine drove them closer and closer together. And under this pressure, Jacob looks around and says, is anybody going to do what's right here and get up and go get us some food? We'll die. You just get a sense 
of what's happening. And already the pressure of the famine is causing them to be in a situation that will lead to a confrontation about their past sins. This happens. You think it's over 20 years later and something will press and it comes out once again. Disjointed, divided, suspicious. Why do you look at one another? So they head down and make the two and a half week journey to Egypt. Verse 6, Joseph is governor of the land. They don't recognize Joseph. He's dressed in Egyptian garb. It would be white linens. He would be clean shaven, maybe even makeup on his face, headgear he's wearing, and he's 20 years older. They don't see him. And he's speaking Egyptian, a dead language today, but one that was very much alive then. When the brothers come, imagine the gasp that Joseph has in his spirit when he sees all these people coming to check with him for food. And there are his brothers. He recognizes them with their beards, their gray hair, the, the wrinkles in their faces. I wonder if their actual physical appearance was affected by the guilt that they bore for all those years. Yet, Joseph recognized them. It says in verse 6, Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Almost, almost a fulfillment of that dream. Not all the brothers were there, though. It's starting, though. Verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Moses wants us to know this. He says the same thing twice while the brothers don't see it's him. And they say they're from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, some commentators are rough on Joseph for not being outward, outrightly honest with them. But this is just being careful. There are mass murderers in the group. And this is not a group to be trifled with. He's being careful with them to see what is their intention. And also, is it possible they're not the same people that I once knew? So he goes right into this mode of speaking to them coldly as just the governor of Egypt with no relationship to them. He's not being vindictive. He's being very careful. Joseph recognizes brothers, verse 8. They didn't recognize him. He remembers the dream, and he says, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. You want to see the vulnerabilities of the land so you can attack us. Now, why would he use this line of argument? Do you remember when he was sent by his father to go check on the brothers? And the brother said, here comes that dreamer. He's spying for dad. Joseph is simply turning the tables now to pressure them, to test them. He's going to give them a bit of their own medicine with a lot more grace because he has a purpose for what he's doing here. Although he's no doubt emotional at this moment. There's, he's got all these thoughts in his head about what to do in the situation. We see a little bit of that here. There's a, a shift even of what he says initially and what he ends up deciding. But what he does here is very wise. He puts them in the same position he was in to some degree. You're spies. That's who you really are. Verse 14, even though they have the nerve to say in verse 11, we are honest men. I mean, they weren't spies before. And he says repeatedly, no, it says, I have said, you are spies. By this you will be tested. You will be put to the test. You'll, be, you'll not go from this place until you bring your younger brother. This serves a couple purposes. He wants to see his brother Benjamin, his full brother Benjamin, who he never got to grow up knowing. Benjamin would have been in his early 20s at this point. So he wants to see Benjamin. But he also wants to test them to see, are these men, these brothers, changed in any way? 
We'll see whether there is truth in you. It says in verse 16, you'll be tested. Bring the brother here. But what does he say? He's going to, leave, he's going to say, leave one, or leave, send one back and leave the rest. That's his first, his first pitch at what to do. But in the meantime, he's going to spend, give them some time to spend in prison. Let them think about this for a bit. All of this seems so awful to them, and maybe it's going to lead to their death, they must be thinking, but it's actually pressing them to be confronted with what they did. And solace will do this for you. It says in verse 17, he put them all together in custody for three days. Remember, his first plan was to just send one back while the other stayed. But over the course of the three days, First of all, imagine all the discussion the brothers were having about why is this happening? What's going on? What's going to happen to us? What do we do? How do we get Benjamin? How is that possible? Which one's going to go? All these discussions, they're off balance. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. We get the indication that Joseph had thought about it a little bit and came up with a more reasonable plan. To send one guy in that journey wouldn't even be safe. He couldn't carry enough with him to actually keep the family alive, wouldn't help them. So out of grace, Joseph's going to send the majority of them, leave one so they can have enough food and still exact his plan. But what's so telling, and must have been telling to the brothers, here is this Egyptian ruler, this pagan ruler in their mind saying, basically I have a different plan we're going to do. Do this and live. Why? For I fear Elohim. It doesn't say I fear Ra, the Egyptian god. I fear Elohim. So there's an acknowledgement that God exists and we are accountable to him. And Joseph believes this. Almost gives himself away here, you might think. And he speaks with that kind of language. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. Let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. To them, this was a terrible travesty he was doing to the family. Joseph, though, is lacing it with grace and care as he tests them. They're being pressured. They're being confronted by the graciousness Joseph is showing, yet the outward hardness that they seem to feel from him. They can't even recognize that he's giving them all this food, and he's going to give them their money back. And because they're where they are in their morality, they take that wrong too. But he's simply giving to them at the same time, working this situation to find out if they've changed and get a chance to see his brother Benjamin. He keeps them off balance. They are being confronted with their sin by the situation at hand. And we'll see it come forward, come out of what they say. They're being confronted even though they're still trying to repress And this is what we have in their confession that now comes forward. They have to admit what they did way back when and how bad it was. James Boyce says in this whole episode leading up to this moment where Simeon's going to be taken to jail and the brothers will have to leave, just before that moment, God was at work. The ice of their rebellion was melting and the crime of which they were guilty was beginning to to work its way towards the surface. Look at verse 21. They don't know that Joseph knows the Hebrew dialect they speak, the Canaanite dialect they speak. 
and they say to one another after they agree to go get Benjamin and leave Simeon. I mean, they're just, and it says, they said to one another. So this is a discussion that breaks out. And Joseph is listening and can hear it all. In truth, we're guilty concerning our brother. In truth, we are guilty in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. They're saying all of this outwardly, loudly. This is why this distress has come upon us. What we did was wrong. We sinned and we deserved the distress. This distress is because of what we've done. That's real confession. It's recognition of the sin and the offense it is and that it deserves whatever comes because of it. And they, for the first time that we know, say this together outwardly. And they did not know that Joseph understood them. And Reuben pipes up at this point because Reuben was the one guy for all his many foibles. He did say, put him in the pit, don't kill him, and he was going to come rescue him later, but didn't get back in time, and they sold him. Reuben says, in the middle of this discussion, Joseph still eavesdropping. Reuben says, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now here comes a reckoning for his blood. You see, confession acknowledges our sin in that we deserve punishment for it. That's where true confession lies. They did not know that Joseph understood them. Verse 23, for there was an interpreter between them. At this point, Joseph cannot take it any longer. But he is not ready to give up what he's doing here, what he's working here. And he has to turn away from them, and he's weeping at this moment. Then he returns to them, and he speaks to them. He's keeping himself as put together as he can. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. He wanted them to see this done to their brother. Would, he, would they abandon that brother too for money? Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Their darkened conscience starts to awaken by the discussion they have openly with each other. Apparently their consciences were not completely dead, although they tried to kill them over the years. This is a good example for us, an extreme example, of why we should not repress our confession, to bury it. The famine pressed the brothers to repentance. Suppressing the past is a terrible thing for us spiritually and really in every way. It's Paul Tripp who wrote, Confession is a grace. Only grace can convince you to abandon your righteousness and to run to the merciful arms of the Lord. As you say out loud these things that you know are true, it's like getting it off your back, the weight off your back, and then you know, having put this out, now I need to go to Christ. Tripp says, here is how confession works. You cannot confess what you haven't grieved. You can't grieve what you do not see. And you cannot repent of what you have not confessed. So one of the most important operations of God's grace is to give us eyes to see our sin and hearts that are willing to confess it. All of this pressed them to have eyes to see what it is they've done, and now they confess it and say it outwardly, outrightly. You know, our worship liturgy is actually designed as a, a pattern for life worship. We go through a certain process every week together. And we come to the point of the confession of sin. Dare I ask, how does it make you feel when you pray the words of the confession? 
Today we prayed using a collective word. We said we when we prayed. Gracious God, we confess that we have longed too much for the comforts of this world. There's a, something cathartic about us together saying what we all know we deal with. Do you own it for yourself when you say those prayers together with your brothers and your sisters? We have loved the gifts more than the giver. I can personalize that for sure in the moment. Sometimes the prayers are actually more personal than the one we had today, a couple weeks ago. Forgive the harsh judgments that I have made of others. We're all saying it. I think we could all think of moments where we did this, where we were making harsh judgments towards other people. And then, what about the leniency I give myself while I'm doing that? Very personal when every I pray those words as we're praying the prayer of confession. Forgive the lies I have told others and the truths I have avoided. Forgive me the pain I have caused others and the indulgence I have shown myself. Do you, when you're praying that, think of how those are particularly realized in your life? Another confession we use regularly here. We confess that we often cleanse the outside of our lives, yet do nothing about the inside of our hearts. Outside, we look righteous, moral, and upright, yet inside, we are filled with anger, lust, greed, lies, and adultery. Whenever we go through that, I'm always happy it's a fast prayer. Because if I stopped in any one of these, anger, lust, greed, I would be the rest of the service, honestly, probably naming even just the last few days, let alone the last week. It's a grace to confess our sins. But you know, the most important part of the confession portion of our liturgy is not even what we say together. It's the part that says individual, silent confession of sin. That's when you get specific with God because he knows already, and I hope we use it for that purpose. Some years ago, about five years ago, I think, maybe seven, I was leading chapel here at HCA right in the sanctuary. We have a service that pretty much looks like our morning service for the elementary campus. And after I got done with the service, a young man comes up to me, a fifth grader, dead serious, says to me, Pastor Tony, can you please make the individual confession of sin longer? I need more. I just, I'm not get, I don't have enough time. And he was dead serious and worried about it. Confession. This is, leads to godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, which leads to life. And it's starting to happen for these brothers who, I don't know about you, but I never, ever would have imagined. Yes, I've read the story before. But I've been so engrossed in the story going through with you that it's just hard. For, even I got to this passage, I know it's the beginning of this. It's still hard for me to believe these guys could be real. But we see they're real. Starting down around verse 26, we pick it up. They acknowledge that God is moving to discipline them. For the first time, they acknowledge God. They know that this is wrong what they've done. Verse 26, they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he realizes the money's there. Now, Joseph means this as a gracious act. He thinks they're going to think we stole this. We swindled them somehow. Somebody did this to us. Someone's out to get us. But notice what he says at this point. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. Their hearts failed. They all had the same sense. They turned trembling to one another and said this collectively, 
What is this that God has done to us? This is, the, this is not a little moment here in this story that we've been looking at. They, for the first time, even say God. And they acknowledge that he is who they are ultimately responsible to. It's not the person who actually pulled off putting the money. It's God who has done this, and we deserve it. It's coming from a place of godly sorrow. They know what's coming to them is deserved, and why is he doing this to us? And they can answer their own question. They deserve what's coming to them for what they did to their brother, among other things. Kent Hughes said, because of their raging guilt, they were quick to see God in this. They were traumatized, shocked, and terrified by a fresh and fearful awareness of the divine. This is a breakthrough for them. When you come to the point where you realize that God is sovereign and you're responsible to him, and what happens is answerable ultimately to him but has some connection to what we're doing in this life, when you come to that moment, that moment opens the way to a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, a life of repentance that always leads to life. Again, Hughes said, fear is one thing, but godly fear, godly sorrow, comes from a sensing that a holy God is the hand behind the circumstances of your life to bring you to where you ought to be. The brothers trembled in their awesome awareness. And if you have sin to confess or something you know you've got to get right, do not bury it more. Godly sorrow is what the brothers were finally beginning to experience and it would become their liberation. Yes, much more needs to unfold in the chapters that happen. There's still more that Joseph has for them. But they were finally off the path that leads to death. They thought they were on the road to death in this episode with with Joseph, but in reality, God was working a godly sorrow in them that would actually lead them to life. The Apostle Paul wrote to new Christians in Corinth and to us by extension, And he said this, For godly grief, godly sorrow in some versions, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, I got caught, oh no, people won't like me or think worse of me, that's worldly grief, that produces death. Paul said, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent of the matter. That's the working of godly sorrow. It's painful when it comes, but it leads to life. Even when the way they report to their father shows something's changed, there's contrition in their disposition. They relay the story with full accuracy, something they couldn't do before even down to their alarming requirement to bring Benjamin back with them. They knew what their father would say to that. Jacob's response is understandable. But Reuben's reply, that shows more of that true sorrow, even if it's irrational what he says. Verse 36, And Jacob their father said, You've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. Now, hold up. Did you notice twice now Jacob has said or done something that indicates he's never really believed the story about Joseph? He knew something was up all along. They would never tell him, though. 20 years of bearing it. How many times do you think Jacob caught one of them and said, can't you, Reuben, tell me the truth about this. Issachar, 
Something doesn't add up with me about that time with Joseph. Dan, could you please, let, I, this to you and I, can you talk to me? And none of them would break. But he's not going to let them take Benjamin. Reuben says, feeling all the weight of this, kill my two sons if I do not bring Benjamin back to you. Put Benjamin in my, in my hands, Father. I will bring him back to you. This is a godly sorrow working now in the brothers for the first time that we have witnessed. The restoration is far from complete, but what a vast difference. God has used Joseph here, the one who had every right to strike them all dead. God is using Joseph to begin to experience the grace of confession and repentance. And isn't this just like Jesus? The one who holds the power of death, hell, and the grave, who could stand as our condemning judge, instead gives us the grace to confess and repent and believe and live. It's true. Be sure your sin will find you out. Maybe these passages that we've read today, this chapter, has been used by the Holy Spirit to bring up some distant, unconfessed sin in your life. If you've never confessed your sin in this way, you've always thought you're good enough, you're better than the people sitting next to you, and that's a, that'll get me into heaven. If you've thought that, but now you know that's not true, may this time in God's word be used to give you actual repentance. I am not worthy in any way, shape, or form, and nothing that I've done is good. It's all filthy rags. Lord, save me. Kent Hughes says one more time, without guilt there could be no forgiveness and no resolution. Perhaps your growing knowledge of God's word in your heart is helping you understand and acknowledge your guilt. If so, embrace it because such an embrace is grace. What is repentance after all? Repentance unto life is a saving grace. And this is where a sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin, and also, at the same time, an apprehension that God is merciful. You're not left hopeless because you acknowledge your sin. And he's merciful because of what Christ has completed. And when I'm in that state with grief and hatred of my sin, turn from it to God with full purpose of an endeavor of after a new obedience. That's what you're starting to see in the brothers. God confronts them with their sin. They confess their sin. They're overwhelmed with a sorrow that comes from a right fear of God, and they're starting to repent. We have this creek in our backyard. Over the fall and the winter, it fills up with leaves and sticks and such, and they, the sticks weave in such a way that hold the leaves, and it dams up the water to the point where it starts to flood our backyard. It happens right in the middle of the creek. And every year, I have to go out there with a rake, and I start to break away at the middle of it to get it to flow so it doesn't flood our whole yard. Pick at the, the debris and then a little bit of water goes through, a little more, flows harder and faster, and then it blows the rest of the leaves away and it's a beautiful, clear stream for a few days as it just, uh, just goes right across, flows right across the back of our yard. The water gushes forward, plows through all the crud, cleans it out. Once confession and repentance starts to flow, it gushes. It's so difficult at first. But then you sense what it brings, and it just comes forward. 
pushes through, flows a little at first, then more, and then it breaks through with a great flow. This is what we're starting to see happen for these brothers. And I pray that this is something that will happen for all of us on a regular as it relates to repentance. But maybe for some specifically, there's just something you've been holding on to for so long and it is wearing you down. It's beating you down. It's changing. It's, it's setting the tone for your life. It's grace to you that God has called this to your mind and that you can confess this and turn from it and unto Christ because he's there for you. He's giving you the actual desire to do even that. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, it is quite possible, if not very probable, that each of us have a guilty conscience about one sin or another. Maybe we have been repressing the guilt that you have awakened in us this day. Father, it is a grace to us that you would make us aware of our sin. Please give us more grace still that we might confess and repent. Give us courage to go to talk to someone that we need to talk to. Christ covers all of this. We believe this. We know, Jesus, this is true of your finished work. Give us strength to deal with some issue of the past that needs dealing with. We see how you use Joseph in the lives of his brothers to move them to repentance, to remove that heavy, back-breaking burden from them. In our lives, we see how our Lord Jesus has paid for all of our sins so that we need not fear confession. Lord, we know that we are your children by adoption and grace. And so give us the courage to be honest with you, our Father. Give us the courage where we need to be honest and so unburden ourselves with this terrible load of guilt. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the freedom that we have in you to be honest and to get things right between one another and with you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together respond by turning to a, a wonderful hymn that prepares us well for the Lord's Supper. Let's stand and sing 420 at the Lamb's High Feast. We sing verse